0: start officially. If you could say your first and last name to make sure I pronounce it right and give your pronouns as well, that would be great.
1: Well, you can call me anything you like. I'm totally relaxed about pronouns, but um, my name is Giles Brandruss. It's a ridiculous name really, but we won't go into that. I'm, it's, I'm lumbered with it. It's not easy. It's not easy. And I made life worse for my children. I have three children. They're called Bennett, Scythrid and Afra beautiful they're lovely names afra is a particularly interesting name in terms of bibliotherapy because she's named after afra ben who was a Distinguished writer, playwright, novelist. Probably the first woman to earn her living as an author in this country. But Scythrid, to be called Scythrid Brandreth. It's a good name. Particularly when you put a speech impediment is really quite challenging. Uh, She doesn't have a speech impediment, though you might think she does with that ridiculous name, but she's got used to it. She's, every day of her life, she has to spell her name. It's a curious thing. Anyway, it's lovely to be with you, Rebecca, taking part in bibliotherapy.
0: Hello and welcome to Shelf Healing, UCL's bibliotherapy podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Markwick. Our guest today is Giles Brandreth. Giles is a writer, broadcaster, actor, and former MP. Giles has written books across Asian genre, fiction, and non-fiction. He is Chancellor of the University of Chester. is a frequent guest on Just a Minute and is a co-host of the award-winning lexicological podcast, Something Rhymes with Purple. Giles is a well-known lover of words and poetry, having delighted us all with readings of poems regularly throughout lockdown. First question to get us started is nice and easy. Do you feel that reading is therapeutic?
1: Yes, it's therapeutic, it's essential, it's fundamental. I read in some way, shape or form all the time, every day. In fact, I never stop reading. I'm one of those people who, you know, in the bathroom is reading the side of the shampoo. I'm, I'm reading what it says on on the back of the toothpaste tube. I have to be reading at all times, always. I'm all, if there's nothing to be read at breakfast, I find the cornflakes packet and read the back of that. Reading is, I've always loved reading. I was very lucky in that as a little boy, my my parents, I come from a family where there were lots of books in the home. Books were fundamental to us. And not only reading, but reading out loud. My parents read a lot to me out loud. You know the famous poem by Philip Larkin. I do a version of it, which begins, they tuck you up your mom and dad, because that's what my mom and dad did for me. They tucked me up in bed and they read me stories. They, they fed my love of words from a very, very early age. And My mother was a pioneer in teaching people who have dyslexia. And this is way years ago. I mean, more than half a century ago in the 1950s, when dyslexia really was barely heard of. And she worked with small children on their reading difficulties and was brilliant. She was a genius teacher. And they really believed in the power of language. I mean, language is power. It's come home to me this year how much that is true, because we haven't been able to, to hug. <laughs> you know, we haven't been able to shake hands. We haven't even, often haven't been able to just smile at one another in person. How can we communicate? It has to be through words. Bertrand Russell said famously, no matter how eloquently a dog may bark, he cannot tell you that his parents were poor but honest. Only words can do that. So language is what defines us, what makes us unique, what differentiates us from the animals. And I don't believe there has yet been a better way of communicating than through the printed word. I love a book. And I can't go to, I never go to bed without reading. And I, during lockdown, got fed up with reading the newspapers because, you know, you can only cope with so much bad news. (laughs) Didn't want to read about politics because I've been a politician, that didn't interest me. Didn't want to read about yet more lockdown loquacity. So I began reading books at meals. So I do read books at meals. If I'm eating alone, I've always got a book with me. I have a book everywhere. I'm... Not very good at doing two things at once, being male. And therefore, I can't really sustain more than one book at a time. And I'm a very slow reader and I'm a, a finisher. I complete a book, I'm a completist. And it takes me about two minutes a page. So it's really annoying if I start on something that isn't terribly good, because I feel obliged to go to the end of it. So I've been reading a vast amount this year. I've been reading a lot of nonfiction. I'm currently reading Rupert Everett's latest book about him making his film about Oscar Wilde and the president of the Oscar Wilde Society. I'm a bit of an Oscar Wilde groupie. I know you only ask a simple question. You don't expect me to talk for about three-quarters of an hour, but... That's because we're meeting at the end of the day, so all the words are tumbling out because I've been writing a book today. I haven't spoken very much. I won't come on to that. So forgive me for answering so uh, at such length, Rebecca, but the answer is yes. And I tell you, uh, yes, reading is fundamental. It is a therapy. It's a stimulus and a therapy. That's what's odd about it. Reading can excite you, can move you, can amuse you can annoy you can frustrate you but also it is it is a therapy it's a way of it's an important thing actually say something important here years ago i had a very fascinating time with a great psychiatrist called professor anthony clare who for people of a certain generation was famous in this country because he did a radio program called in the psychiatrist's chair And he's no longer alive, but he was a wonderful man. And he and I worked on a book together, which I published, called The Seven Secrets of Happiness. And We talked about happiness. But one of the rules of being happy was to break the mirror, to stop thinking about yourself. And there were seven rules. We had to obey all of them to to find happiness. And what, what he meant, he didn't mean ecstasy, he didn't mean a high. He meant that sense of well-being, that sense of balance. And he said, break the mirror, stop thinking about yourself. Certainly don't talk about yourself. And the great thing about reading is it can take you out of yourself. You can open a book and you go into another world, whatever the book may be. So that is a therapeutic element. There's therapy too, I think, in letting the eyes go across the page. I often read a book late at night and I've forgotten in the morning what I read and have to go back. You know, particularly if it's a murder mystery, you've got to go back five pages to find out in case you've missed something. But I don't mind that. It's like poetry. I often read poetry. I have no idea what the words mean, no idea what the poem means. But I love that. And in fact, I, I was very reassured. I used to feel guilty about it. And then I read the T.S. Eliot, the great T.S. Eliot, um, that he said, don't worry, you know, it's, it's like music. Words are like music. You don't go to a concert and actually follow all the themes. and You may not necessarily know anything about music. You may be able to read the dots when it's going up or down. It just somehow works for you. Well, poetry can be like that. So I think reading the words is therapeutic. The content can be therapeutic. The act of reading is therapeutic. And I have at the bedside always several... I have lots of books always at the bedside. I have a little trough of books that are always there. And they include an anthology of poetry. We'll come to it in a minute. They also include dictionaries of quotations. Because, you know, deep down I'm shallow. And I like a, a nugget. And I think a little quotation is great fun. I love a fun quotation. You know? Too much of a good thing is wonderful, <laughs> said May West. I like to fall asleep with a little bit of May West or a bit of Dorothy Parker, just a bit of wit. Or, if I'm feeling in the mood, I look up Emily Dickinson and just get a line or two. And I read diaries. I've always got diaries on the bedside. Virginia Woolf, who I think of whenever I visit anything to do with UCL because of it being so uh, Bloomsbury adjacent. Virginia Woolf, great novelist. And you're, hey, 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 Rebecca. Rebecca. I'm known, I'm known for my name dropping. I'm so sorry we can't shake hands. Because if you shook hands with me, you'd be shaking the hand that shook the hand that held the hand that wrote The Waves and Mrs. Dalloway. Oh
0: my goodness.
1: Yes, I'm Leonard Woolf.
0: It's yeah. amazing.
1: That is amazing. That is amazing. That is amazing. Uh, while, I'm, while I'm playing that game with you, <laughs> I also, when you shake my hand, you're shaking the hand that shook the hand that wrote The Importance of Being Earnest.
0: Oh!
1: I knew a man who was a friend of Oscar Wilde.
0: Oh, my goodness. Isn't that that incredible? That's fabulous. Uh, uh,
1: And that's because the school I was at, he had founded this school in the 1890s, and Oscar Wilde sent his eldest son to the school. And uh, when I was at the school in the 1960s, this old boy was still alive. He died aged 102, I think. Oh, my goodness. I I knew him in his late 90s, so... uh, I met him, so I shake him hand. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. The point is that on the bedside, I have books of quotations, books of poetry, and diaries. And I recommend to anybody reading this, particularly people who may find Virginia Woolf difficult. Some people don't like Virginia Woolf as a writer. Some people didn't like her as a person, felt that she was snobbish. There are people who say that also she had anti-Semitic traits, but she was undoubtedly a prose artist of genius. And But some people find her novels difficult. What nobody can find difficult are her diaries. There is an edition of her diaries called A Shorter Diary, of Virginia Woolf, uh, edited by, I think... Maybe some sort of kinswoman of hers, certainly a a descendant of the Bloomsburys, Anne-Olivier Bell. Yes, it would be a a kinswoman of hers. Anne-Olivier Bell edited this. And it's almost my favorite bedside book. You could open it, dip in at any page, find the date you're on. Just read a paragraph of Virginia Woolf before going to sleep and you'll sleep well. It's fantastic. So um, you didn't ask me. I do a programme called Just a Minute. They ask you to speak for just a minute. You didn't ask me to speak for 15 minutes. But it's such a good question. Thank you. That I'm burbling away. It's because I haven't thought it through. I'm just giving you my spontaneous numbers.
0: It's lovely. We like spontaneous. You've actually answered the next two questions in that. Oh. Which makes perfect sense why it lasted so long. You, you've saw what I was coming up with, which is what kind of books Ah, do you reach for? And is there a time or a place that you read? And you've answered both of those. I
1: I will answer that, if I may answer that more fully.
0: Yes, of course.
1: What type of books do you reach for? Well, during, uh, I do believe in comfort reading. Books do furnish a room. I have thousands of books, tens of thousands of books, probably. You can see in the background, because we're looking at each other on Zoom, you can see some of the books in this particular room, but I've got room books in every every room in the house. And the books in the bathroom are pretty damp by now. I've got books (laughs) everywhere. And I've got lots of books I will never read. I know I'll never read them, but I just like having them. I like owning a book. I like smelling a book. Mm. The therapy of a book happens the moment you pick it up. The moment you look inside a book that has end papers mm. a book that is made with beautiful paper a book that has a spine that when you open it when, oh a book that is properly bound i love that a book or sometimes you find a book that's got a little uh, bit of silk that you can c- keep a bookmark in or it's printed in two colors i love that so there's therapy in the physical shape smell and feel of a book There's therapy for me in the books of childhood. I go back to the books of childhood. I go back to picture books. I go back to Rupert Bear. Rupert Bear, 100 years old this year, um, born in 1920. Brilliant woman created uh, Rupert Bear. And she sadly, you know, went blind Mm. and she couldn't go on doing it. And the work was taken over by another artist, called Alfred Bestel, who people think are even better than her. But anyway, I go into the world of Nutwood. I I love those books. I love Winnie the Pooh. Of course, I love Winnie the Pooh. Oh, Oh, while I'm dropping names and shaking hands with you, you can shake my hand again. Rebecca, you're now shaking the hand that shook the hand that held the paw of Winnie the
0: Pooh.
1: I was a friend of the real Christopher Robin Milne.
0: That is incredible.
1: Son of A.A. Milne, who was born again 100 years ago in 1920. And Christopher Robin Milne, a real man, grew up to be a real bookseller and actually a real writer himself. He wrote a couple of wonderful memoirs that I, I recommend. He had a difficult time being Christopher Robin. He loved it when he was a small boy, but when he was a teenager, he hated it because he felt, in fact, he said he accused his father of building his reputation by standing on a small boy's shoulders. Really almost fell out with his parents because of the success of Winnie the Pooh and Christopher Robin, the books. But later he was reconciled to it and he was a lovely human being. Christopher Robin was one of the sweetest, nicest people it's been my privilege to know. Anyway, I love the world of Winnie the Pooh. So I disappear into these childhood worlds that were created. Uh, By the way, (laughs) 1904 is my favourite year for books. Really? Because it's the year that, well, I mean, it was just an amazing year. The things that happened in 1904, I hope I've got the year right now I'm saying this, (laughs) given that we'll be, you know. All these serious ing-lit students will be listening and saying, Oh, yeah, he never stops talking, never lets you get a word in edgeways. Um, But it's only because I'm pleased to be talking about this because I love books so much. 1904, J.M. Barry wrote Peter Pan, which is, that's a world to escape into if you want Mm. to. But also, I think Chekhov wrote The Cherry Orchard. Yes. And comfort reading, Arnold Bennett wrote. The Old Wives Tale. Have you read The Old Wives Tale?
0: It's on my shelf. It is one of those books that is just on my shelf, but I have not yet read it.
1: <laughs> you must put it down off your shelf for this Christmas, Rebecca. Read The Old Wives Tale. Um, Arnold Bennett was one of the great British novelists. In my book, he's up there. I mean, with the greats, when I mean the greats, we're talking about, you know, Jane Austen, George Eliot, Virginia Woolf. I mean, this this is a major literary figure, Arnold Bennett. Now, forgotten. He's not on most people's shelves. Well done you having him on your shelf. <coughs> he came from the potteries in the Midlands, the pottery towns in the Midlands. A lot of his novels, most of them, in fact, begin in the potteries, the five towns, as he called them. I think there were actually six. And The Old Wife's Tale, Anna and the Five Towns, is is a popular one. Um, but I think The Old Wife's Tale is his masterpiece, It's a really historical novel, It's a book where you just you just disappear into that world and you meet a lot of women writers and critics reckon that Arnold Bennett is the 19th and 20th century British male writer who understands women best. So I can't be a judge of that but you could be a judge of that. So see what you make of Arnold Bennett, The Old Wife's Tale. That is a Christmas treat. Give Dickens a miss for one year. I love Dickens. Of course I do. Uh, But Dickens gives us characters. Arnold Bennett gives us people. So I go to big novels for comfort reading that you can lose yourself in. And I would recommend The Old Wife's Tale. What is your comfort reading? What are the comfort novels that you would go to?
0: Oh, I always go for Jeeves and Worcester.
1: Oh. You can't
0: beat a bit of Jeeves and Worcester to cheer you up if you've had a bad day and you are. The writing is impeccable. The humour is still so relevant and so utterly beautiful. I I can't. You can't
1: beat P.G. Woodhouse. You you certainly can't. I go for your P.G. tips there. Absolutely. (laughs) P.G. Woodhouse is is the master. And you know, he is the person who's in the Oxford English Dictionary for inventing the most words in the first half of the 20th century. I did not. He came up with all sorts of funny words and phrases that we now know. You know, cheerio, pip, pip, ankling down to the club and all that. I love Jeeves. And Worcester.
0: I've got one right here, actually.
1: What are you reading? I'm
0: I'm very bad, and I I have beautiful copies. You're not
1: very bad. It's very good to have. It's a beautiful copy. Slowly. And when you run through all your Jeeves and Worcester, the great originals, you know Ben Schott? yes, contemporary novelist, writer. Um, he started doing some sequels, authorized sequels, oh, and they're very good. I did not know that. They're fun. They're fun. So they're
0: going on my Christmas list. They're
1: going on. Your Christmas I'm hoping it's going to be a long Christmas <laughs> list, isn't it? So that was. So you like Jesus I like comic writers. My favourite contemporary, well, not no 20th century comic writer, probably is uh, Evelyn Waugh. Oh yes. The, the 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 wit and the novels of of Evelyn Waugh. But you can't go you can't go wrong with PG uh, Woodhouse. There was a famous writer called Frank Richards. Have you heard of him? I have. Now, why have you heard of him? Do you know?
0: I don't know, but you said the name and light bob started
1: yeah. started going. You may know him because he's in the Guinness Book of Records as the most prolific writer of the twentieth century. He created Billy Bunter.
0: That's yes. There we go. <laughs> and,
1: he, and he created Greyfriars School, which is a kind of precursor to the school created by J.K. Rowling.
0: Yes. Uh,
1: the whole Hogwarts. It's kind of Hogwarts world 100 years earlier. But instead of the feature of, you know, Hogwarts magic is the feature, at Greyfriars it's beating. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the boys are all being beaten constantly by the teachers. And there's greed. Of, uh, Billy Bunt is a fat boy and we don't mind that. We make fun of him. Uh, they're comic novels. And, you know, if you take them as that, they are, they're, they're fun. Uh, so did you have, were there schoolgirl novels that people read? I mean, obviously not having been a schoolgirl. Wow. At any
0: Personally, no, I, I always went slightly elsewhere. I'm a big science fiction fan. Oh. So I, I was a big fan of Terry Pratchett and Ian Banks and all of that. Hmm. But I believe Mallory Towers is the equivalent. Yeah, that's,
1: Mallory Towers is, is big. Well, I, sh- I shook the hand of Terry Pratchett. <gasps> that's not much because he's a contemporary. But in fact, we were exactly the same age. Uh, Science fiction means nothing to me. That's my dead area. It means absolutely nothing. But you must, given I know you are an equestrian by day when you're not doing your PhD, (laughs) uh, you must have been a Jilly Cooper girl. (laughs)
0: No, no, no. no. Oh, again, no, really? I, I know Julie, I, I know of Julie Cooper and I know the books, but I I do not read them.
1: Oh, people find her really therapeutic. Yes. I mean, they, they go to her for comfort reading. Uh, you know, they go for writers. Oh, yeah. Raunchy writers. Yay. <laughs> uh, we like that. I'm not, I mean, I love all kinds of writing. I just think if it's there, it's fun, it's to be had. And that's why I don't mind. I like picture books. I like going back to Tintin.
0: I love Tintin. I love, oh, oh. Yeah. Tintin. Sorry, I, I got
1: a bit overexcited there. <laughs> Tintin, I love. Baba, I love. Baba, the elephant. I love all that. Great. So we know we've established central our comfort writing Where do we like reading? Where do I like reading? I like reading a lot. In normal times, I like reading in Starbucks, Cafe Nero. I like going out to places. If I allow my, I mean, I, because I'm a writer, I work basically my rule in life. You know, if you want to write a book, what did Mark Twain say? Well, if you had my dictionary of quotations on your bedside, you'd know. He said, if you want to write a book, what you need is application. Apply the seat of the pants to the seat of the chair. So <laughs> that's, if you want to write a book, that's what you have to do. And I do, you know, like most writers, I get up and I sit at the desk eight in the morning and I'm there till I've done my thousand words, or whatever the number of words I've set myself. But if I get to the end of a section, or if I get to the end of a book and I want to reward myself, I will take a book, somebody else's book, and I will go to Starbucks at the end of my road or Cafe Nero or indeed even, you know, a beautiful uh, individual coffee shop, even better. And I will find a corner and I will just read the book. So I love that. I love if I'm in a hotel, you know, and in recently doing some filming and all the hotels I was staying though advertised by Lenny Henry he was never in any of them. So I was alone and I couldn't eat in the dining room because of COVID. So I sat in my room and I made it a rule not to watch the television, not to watch the television. And I thought I'm going to read a book. So with my supper, I like to read a book with a meal. So that is quite good. And I've got certain armchairs that I like to read in. And I like to read certain books in certain rooms There are some chairs for non-fiction. They're slightly harder. (laughs) Uh, You've got to sit up more. (laughs) And there are other books for sort of nestling, other chairs and sofas for nestling back in for fiction. So it depends what the book is. I don't read books in the bath.
0: No. I'm always worried I'll drop them and
1: they'll get wet. Yeah, exactly. Actually, that has happened to me over the years, and they're quite fun. You then keep them and you dry them on the radiator.
0: And they go all wrinkly.
1: (laughs) And they swell up you'll find when you get to my age uh, that that happens to you as a person when you get into the bath when you're young a bath and a shower they're risk-free when you get to my age you get in and you find after 20 minutes you wrinkled and swell, swollen up but with a book it falls in the bath gets all soaked It then you you, you know and, and then the spine breaks and goodness knows what happens so I read magazines or newspapers in the bath or I read as I said the side of the, the soap packet so I have to read in the bath as well so those are my favourite places for
0: reading. Lovely. Now, you have been reading poems aloud throughout both lockdowns, and I believe they're all learned by heart. Do you find that this memorising improves your, your mental well being and having access to such a large selection of poetry wherever you go? Do you find that comforting?
1: Yes. I'm a believer in learning poetry by heart. I think it's important for a variety of reasons. I've done some research into this. I I went to Cambridge University and met a marvellous woman there called Professor Goswami, who was doing work on babies and their brains and their reception of language. And she discovered through measuring brainwaves, literally, that babies, before they're born, if you speak rhythmical poetry to them... These babies will learn themselves to speak sooner and better than if you didn't. And they'll learn to read sooner and better, and even to write sooner and better. Speaking poetry, rhythmical poetry to unborn babies improves their facility with language, their language skills. At the other end of the spectrum, I also learned from this remarkable professor Goswami that for older people, learning poetry by heart keeps your synapses all juiced up. You know, the brain, well, what is it? It's nothing but a muscle. And if you don't use it, you lose it. The part of the brain that looks after memory is called the hippocampus. And in your 70s, you have as many new cells growing in your hippocampus in your 70s as you did when you were 17. So it's not a function of age being able to memorize things. So it's good. It's good for you. It's good for babies. It's good for old people. It's good for you. Also, it's good for you because it engages the brain. This is why I love watching TV. I love watching movies, particularly. I love going to the cinema. I love listening to the radio. But reading is different. You have to engage the eye and the mind. And learning by heart is different still. You really are making things work inside your head. And so it's both therapeutic and it's good and it's soothing and it's easy to do. Learning poetry by heart is easier. I illustrate it I will do it now with you. Anybody can learn, anybody in the world can learn two lines of poetry a day. We will now do it. There once was a man from Peru, please repeat after me. There once was a man from Peru. There
0: once was a man from Peru.
1: Whose limericks stopped at line two.
0: Whose limericks
1: stopped at line two. (laughs) That's the entire poem. Now the point is (laughs) that everybody's listening has now learnt that poem. It's only two lines long. There once was a man from Peru whose limerick stopped at line two. Of course, it's ridiculous. But the point is you can learn two lines very quickly. Even two difficult lines you would learn in a day. Mm. You repeat them to yourself often enough. Do them in the shower. Do them as you're doing the washing up. You know, do them as you're walking around. Learn two lines today and then another two lines tomorrow. And then build up. And gradually, within a week, you can have learned a sonnet. Mm. And the satisfaction of having in the rattle bag of your mind a sonnet by Elizabeth Browning or by William Shakespeare or, you know, whoever it may be. Oh, there's nothing more satisfying. So I do try to learn poems by heart and I've, I've loved doing it. In fact, I produced an anthology this year called Dancing by the Light of the Moon. It's called that because, of course, it's a it's a reference to one of my favorite childhood poems and yours, which is. Yes. The Out and the Pussycat. It is. Isn't it? You know, yes. didn't send you. Yeah. The Out and the Pussycat went to Sea.
0: In a beautiful pea green boat.
1: Oh, so you are. Yeah. They took some.
0: Oh, uh, honey.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> honey? plenty of money wrapped up in a five-pound note. Yeah, you're getting that. But the point is, it's still in your head. You learned it as a baby, and it's still there. And Dancing by the Light of the Moon is a phrase in that. And uh, I call the book that, and it's it's a big, fat book, hundreds of pages, 300 poems. And they're all poems to learn by heart. And they're short poems, silly poems, long poems, sad poems, happy poems. It's a poem for every day of the year. And I, what I've been doing in lockdown... I used to wear these funny jumpers, colourful jumpers, on TV in the 1970s and 80s. I gave them up when I became a Member of Parliament. But somebody, I'm on Twitter, at GilesB1, at G-Y-L-E-S-B-1, and on Instagram, not as good on that as I ought to be. But anyway, Instagram, at Giles Brandreth or at GilesB1 on Twitter. And I, I put, somebody's tweeted me and said, desperate times call for desperate measures, Put on a funny jumper. So I put on a funny jumper. I can't just, you know, appear on Twitter like some goon wearing a funny jumper. I've got to do something. So I thought, I will put on a nice jumper and I'll recite a poem. And because I haven't worked out how to change the settings on my Twitter account, I can only do poems that last up to 45 seconds. So when I do a sonnet, people say, oh, you did that Shakespeare sonnet so quickly. (laughs) They said it works brilliantly when it's done at speed. (laughs) It's because I've got to get it done in 45 seconds. So if you want a quick read, because most people are doing a sonnet, you know. You hear great actors like Simon Russell Beale doing a sonnet. They take two or three minutes over it. They're milking every word. But, you know, I'm, shall I compare thee to a summer stay? (laughs) So, um, but I do... You know, whether it's Roger McGough, Michael Rosen, Spike Milligan, Insta poets, or indeed the greats, whether it's Robert Graves, whether it's Keats, Shelley, Shakespeare, I do a different poem every day and I love doing it. It's therapy for me. And I have had a project this year and encouraged you, in fact, to take part in it, Rebecca, you must choose a forty-five-second poem. This is the price of me being on your podcast. I have one. have got.
0: I have a poem I memorised when I was eight years old oh. that has stuck with me forever.
1: Excellent! It's well, fantastic. Please, would you recite it to us now?
0: <laughs> I can do. It's. Uh, I can't. Sadly, I cannot remember who it is by. It is in one of my many poetry books, but it's called "Death of a Fly."
1: Death of a fly.
0: Death of a fly. Go. It. It goes like this: Fly see saucer. Fly fly down me see fly 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 walk round fly take big sip me take spoon fly look wrong way spoon go boom cup go wobble tea go splat fly get big fright fly get flat fly not fly now fly not sip. fly just flied on final trip
1: that is a joy it is would you please type that up and send it to me by email and i will be doing it (laughs) on on the day the podcast goes out i will be doing it on, if I may, of course, on Twitter, of course,
0: it's a fabulous poem.
1: <laughs> and I'll dedicate you to the bibliotherapy podcast. So I do recommend to people, uh, and I'm going to, when 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 our time is up, I'm going to end by by reading you one of my favourite poems, and it's one that I I'm meaning to learn. I haven't yet learnt it. I've learned a lot of poems this year. The challenge is to keep them in your head. Yes. That that's a real challenge. Occasionally I've done a poem that's gone a bit viral. I did one that I loved by Emily Dickinson earlier in the year. Do you know this one? If I can stop one heart from breaking. Yes. It's beautiful. If I can stop one heart from breaking, I shall not live in vain. If I can ease one life the aching or cool one pain, or help one fainting robin unto his nest again, I shall not live in vain. <laughs> Emily Dickinson is one of my favorites. Now that's a lovely short poem. "Read that before you go to sleep." And but, I mean, I do something every night. My father, bless him, was a man of faith, and he always used to say his prayers every night. He, he was born a long time ago, in 1910. He's been dead a long time, but I can still picture him every night. He would, in his pajamas, he'd kneel by his bed with his hands folded, and he would say his prayers. And I think of him every night as I get into bed. I don't say my prayers, but I always count my blessings. And I, I, I love doing that. And I usually start with people. Some days I start with the cat. In fact, I often start with the cat. And given it's the neighbor's cat, I feel I've got to count my blessings in case it decides to go in. <laughs> um, and then I, sometimes, I, mean, I often include food and things. But I always make a point of including an author of some kind in counting my blessings. And I find that Emily Dickinson is one of the blessings that I, I count. Do you count your blessings?
0: Sometimes, yes. Frequently, it's that so, my coat didn't let all the rain in.
1: Very good. <laughs> so just before I go, have you answered, asked all your questions?
0: Yes, plenty. You've given me a most wonderful, <laughs>
1: wonderful. Before we go, because listeners, have we've heard a lot from me. We haven't heard enough from you. Uh, where's your favourite place for reading a book? Oh,
0: I, I do enjoy reading a book. I have one of those chairs that's shaped like a bowl with a big cushion in, and that's excellent because you can properly curl up in front of the log fire and, that, and, and get really cosy
1: to read a book. Oh, we've discovered your favourite therapy author is P.G. Woodhouse. Uh, who is your favourite great novelist?
0: <gasps> Tolkien.
1: Tolkien.
0: I read Lord of the Rings, I think, when I was five. I was mildly precocious, and it, it has stuck with me ever since.
1: Goodness. OK, that's that's well. we have to accept that. And you're <laughs> right.
0: Oh, now that's that's a tricky one, Giles. Oh, I, I do love my poetry. It would probably have to be John Donne.
1: Oh, of course it has to be John Donne. You'll find plenty of John Donne in my Dancing by the Light of the Moon. I love John Donne. Also, his amusing short poem when his marriage failed, you know, John Donne, Anne Donne, Undone. I just love that. I love all those people of that generation. He's the same sort of era as Andrew Marvell, isn't he? Mm -hmm. I, I love those, the metaphysical poets. What was your degree in?
0: My first degree was in English literature and creative writing
1: at Royal Holloway. At Royal Holloway, oh my! At Royal Holloway, my my wife did her Shakespeare studies at Royal Holloway. That's out in the countryside somewhere, isn't it, that?
0: It is. It's in Egham.
1: The founder of the has got a statue of his wife in the middle of the courtyard. Yes, quite yes. right too. I hope people don't pull down the statue, thinking it was patronising of him to put it up, um, because he meant well. So keep the statue up there, whatever they find out about her. Keep that statue. <laughs> Okay.
0: It's beautiful. It's yeah. beautiful.
1: Well, look, it's been lovely being with you. It's been lovely to have you. I'm going to end by with a poem. Of course. Um, if I may. And it's a poem by a, a writer, an Irish poet called Derek Mann, who was born in 1941 and he died this year.
0: <sighs> but
1: he, I, I read this poem of his on Instagram uh, and Twitter And it sort of went viral because it clearly spoke to people in 2020. And this is one of the ways that bibliotherapy works. This is a therapeutic poem because it doesn't avoid the truth. It helps us live with the truth. How should I not be glad to contemplate the clouds clearing beyond the dormer window? and a high tide reflected on the ceiling. There will be dying, there will be dying, but there is no need to go into that. The poems flow from the hand unbidden, and the hidden source is the watchful heart. The sun rises in spite of everything, and the far cities are beautiful and bright. I lie here in a riot of sunlight, watching the daybreak and the clouds flying. Everything. It's going to be all right.
0: It's wonderful. That's fantastic. I'm going to put all of the poems, the poets, the authors, the books you've mentioned in the show notes, along with everywhere people can find you on Twitter. I follow you. I love, I love all your poems and your jumpers. So all our listeners can hopefully listen to the podcast and then go and read everything that has been suggested for their improved well-being.
1: Great. And I would like you, Rebecca, please, to email me with, with that poem so that I can... Of course. Okay.
0: And I will try and find the book that it comes from so I can find the author of the poet to give him good credit. I found it. It's a poet called Steve Turner, and it's from a collection called The Day I Fell Down the Toilet.
1: That would be nice to be able to credit where it's due, yeah. because that's very important. Um, particularly those of us authors who are dependent on public lending yes. rights. <laughs> which we which we value. You, you said you were going to go into publishing and you had done creative writing. Have you, are you a published poet or novelist yourself?
0: I am not. I am. <laughs> I am not.
1: But you're working on so, that, are we?
0: Well, I'd like to go in more on the the other side, the getting other people's works oh. out there to speak to people people. Um, um, my own writing—I've—I've I've done some short stories here and there, but
1: nothing. Oh no, brace yourself—you don't need to rush. Many of the best writers—I'm—I'm ca- I'm keeping the best to last. <laughs> I mean, I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm, I'm not peaking for another ten or fifteen years, so you know you just got to keep going. There was a very successful novelist, I think, called Mary Wesley, who I knew, who published her first novel when she was seventy. Oh my goodness. And it was hugely successful. So I wouldn't worry about that. Pace yourself. <laughs> Meanwhile, thank you if you're going to be a publisher. I know a lot of publishers. It's a hard grind and they don't pay them very much. No. <laughs> um, now you don't even get to go to the office. You've got to do it all from home. So it's, it's a lonely, thankless life that you've got <laughs> yourself. So don't, don't give up the day job too soon. Keep writing and discover Chili Cooper. <laughs> it's a guilty pleasure but I can assure you there is pleasure involved (laughs) (laughs) fabulous okay that's it that's it from us over and out excellent lovely speaking to you um, and thank you for this thank you very much
0: and sadly for us that is the end of a fantastic interview with the lovely Giles Brandreth I will be back next week with another Shelf Healing Interview Thanks, as always, to Nicholas Patrick for our music and to Lucas Montgomery for our transcriptions. And a big shout out to Lisa Dalton, who runs the Shelf Healing Twitter account. Everyone go follow it. It's fabulous. See you next week. Bye.